Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome to our 11th lesson in the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for bringing us together as you have today. I ask that you would be the one to teach and speak and lead us into all truth. To the praise of Christ's name and for the extension of his kingdom. Amen. Well, in our last lesson, Paul encouraged us to willingly cooperate with one another within the body of Christ, and he dealt with specific relationships between a husband and a wife, a child and a parent, a slave and their master. And he showed how in each of those relationships, the wife, child and servant were to keep their eyes firmly on God as being their husband, their father and their master. They were to trust in him as their protector and provider as they willingly cooperated within the earthly relationships that they had. And similarly, husbands, fathers, and masters who in those days had the upper hand in that culture, they were to remember their accountability before God. They were to be very mindful of representing Jesus well, of loving and honoring others in the same way that Christ had mercifully dealt with them. This way of interacting was, of course, very different to the culture around them at the time in Ephesus. And truth be told, it's very different to the culture that we live in today. God calls us as Christ followers to live differently to the world around us. He calls us to live in a way that will bring honor to his name because we're to be imitators of God. As as his light shines through us, it's going to begin to change those around us who will be won over by our actions more than ever by our words. As Paul concludes his message to the church at Ephesus, he's going to draw their attention and ours to the fact that as we live for the Lord on earth, we're engaged in a battle and it's not visible to the human eye. Let's look at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Well, there's so much in these verses, so let's begin to break them down. First, I want you to notice that we're called to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and that is the vital foundation to spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is waged in God's power, not our own strength. Remember that as we studied the city of Ephesus in our first lesson, we learned about the seven sons of Siva in Acts chapter 
chapter 19. And we saw how they had tried to stand against the forces of evil without ever being covered by the blood of Christ. Of course, you'll remember they were totally unsuccessful. And those demons, though, knew Christ. They knew of his servant Paul, but they also knew that the seven sons of Siva had no personal relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords. They were not his messengers and were not operating in Christ's authority. I want you to think of it this way. When you are leaving an event like a sporting event and the police are directing traffic, why do you obey their instructions? Is it because they're particularly fit and they're very muscular, they've worked out for two hours even that morning already? No. Do you obey them because they have more schooling than you or for some other reason? No, you obey them because of the uniform that they're wearing and the authority it carries with it. And the same is true for spiritual warfare. Our authority does not depend on our own strengths, but rather on the fact that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Our ability to engage in spiritual warfare depends on us being in Christ and being clothed with his authority and his power. And so we are to be strong in the Lord. Look at what Paul says in the next verse, verse 11, because there he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Now notice this armor that God has given to us is ours for the taking, and yet it needs to be put on completely. We need to be in God's whole armor. And I think that this is an incredible image that is painted for us. Because if you think about any warrior equipped um, to go to battle, they're going to have defensive as well as offensive tools. Well, for example, let's think of riot police, which we may be more familiar with. They wear bulletproof vests and helmets, and they have shields to protect them. But in addition to that, they're also given weapons to go on the offensive with, and those weapons would be like tear gas or batons. These things are not of their own making. They've been given to them by the government for their protection and their success. But for them to be really effective, they have to use what they've been given. And we have to be completely dressed. We have to put on that which God has provided. He's made armor available for us for a specific purpose. According to verse 11, it is so that we are, and I quote, able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Some translations put it this way, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. God wants us to stand immovable and unharmed. He wants us to stand ready or prepared with a steadfast mind that does not hesitate or waver. If you think of a soldier, not only is he clothed for battle, but he's also practiced in the use of his weaponry. Soldiers practice again and again and again so that when the time comes, they will not hesitate. They will not waver. They'll have no doubt or second thought. They will use the weapons that they have been given to do what needs to be done. And we're called to be like that too, because our enemy, the devil, has schemes and we're called to stand against them. He is actively trying to deceive and to destroy us as God's people.
Interestingly, the word for schemes or wiles in the text is the Greek word methodia, which we get our English word method from. So we're to stand firm then against Satan's methods. Now, it's interesting to me that this suggests that the enemy has a number of different attacks that are both planned and well organized. Satan knows our weaknesses and he knows which methods will work the best to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. And it's just as he did with Eve in the garden. Remember in tempting her to eat the forbidden fruit, he really convinced her that God did not have her best interest at heart. He convinced her that God was holding out on her and that God was in some way spiteful and unkind. And I want you to know that Satan's methods have not changed. He's full of deception, twisting the meaning of God's word. Not only that, but he tries to distract us from digging deeper into God's word and he tempts us to wander from the truth. Not only that, he sows irritation and disunity within the body of Christ. And if that doesn't work, then he tries to debilitate us, making us feel afraid and inadequate that we never step out in service of God. He causes us to doubt the truth of God's promises. In verse 12, Paul goes on to talk about some of the different levels with regard to the powers of evil in the world that we live in, saying, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of this, the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So despite what we see, we're not truly fighting against human powers. There may be human agents involved, but our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil that influence and control the human agents. Now, I know that many people prefer not to discuss the topic of demons or of spiritual principalities. Some think that, well, if we just never address it, maybe it'll all go away. But the truth is, whether we like it or not, we're already in this battle, and ignoring it will not make it disappear. If we are soldiers in God's army, we need to act like we are. And any soldier will tell you that there is value in knowing something about your enemy and his strategy. One thing we have to understand from the start is that Satan is not God's equal. Now, I know that that may seem a strange thing to say, but a lot of people think that there is God and Satan, good and evil, equal and opposite. But that is not true. Satan is a created being. He is not a creator. There's only one creator. Satan is created, and he's always wanted to be equal with God or greater than God, but he's neither. He is a liar. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 44? Speaking of Satan, he says he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's been a deceiver since Genesis, and so you can expect him to lie to you, often in the most subtle and convincing way. For example, when I was just 
first coming to faith in Christ, I'd just begun going to church and at the time my husband was not going with me and although he never once complained, I suddenly got it into my head that seeing as God loved marriage, I should stop going to church because God wouldn't want church to become a problem of division between my husband and me. So I decided finally to go for one last service and that day there was a visiting preacher who didn't know me at all. He spoke about how the devil had deceived Eve in the garden and he said that afterwards she and her husband had tried unsuccessfully to hide their sin from God by making excuses for what they'd done. He went on to say, now I don't know what your excuses are today for not going on with God, but let me tell you, they won't stand up any better than Adam and Eve's fig leaves did. Perhaps your husband is not coming to church and you're thinking of quitting. Well, know that when you stand before God, that fig leaf isn't going to cover your actions any more than Adam's and Eve's covered theirs. He said some other things too, but I didn't even hear them. It seemed as if he'd been reading my mail. But remember, he didn't know me in any way. It was the Holy Spirit who was at work to speak to my heart. And so I kept going to church. And as a result, eventually my husband came with me. We both received Christ together and went on to be baptized together. And what that taught me is that often the enemy's lies sound perfectly sensible. He is a deceiver. And he's also an accuser. The night before my husband and I got baptized, we had a terrible argument. And both of us said to each other, how can we be baptized when we're acting like this? But as we stood there looking at one another, we suddenly realized that's exactly the reason why we needed to be baptized. Christianity is about declaring our need for a savior. We could never be good enough for God on our own. Following Jesus was the only way we could ever be different. And as a symbol of that, we needed to be willing to die to self and be raised in Christ's power, which really baptism depicts. So Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and his intent is really to cut us off from God and to separate us from his people, and that's a very strategic move. You don't have to be a military strategist to know that the most effective way to defeat any army is to cut their supply line. If you successfully cut that, without food and without supplies, it's only a matter of time before the army will be overwhelmed. So expect Satan's forces to try to cut your supply line. Expect there to be difficulties when it comes to being involved in Bible study or when it comes to going to church. Understand that your enemy's mission is to cut you off from personal interaction with God's word. He'll also seek to discourage you, but don't give up. For example, in the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel had a vision he didn't understand, and so he began to fast and pray for God to send him the answer. Day after day, he fasted. Day after day, he prayed, and nothing. He waited 21 days before God's messenger came and spoke with him. And I always say, praise God, Daniel didn't give up on day 19. You can go and read it all, but in Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, the angel, who's thought to be Gabriel, said to Daniel, 
Do not fear, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the land latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Well, what is revealed here is really significant. First of all, Daniel is told that from the first day that he prayed, his words were heard and the angel had been sent by God to him. But there'd been this delay of three weeks. What caused it? Well, verse 13 says that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood God's angel 21 days. Now, believe me that this was no human prince that Gabriel's referring to here. This is about a heavenly war and a demonic prince that delayed the answer. How do we know that? Well, it's because we're told by the angel that Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I'd been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Scripture tells us that the archangel Michael stands guard over the people of Israel, and so it's very appropriate that it should be he who is sent to aid Gabriel in delivering God's message to Daniel on behalf of the Jewish people. This really lines up with what Paul says here in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Scripture makes it plain that Satan does have influence over earthly kings, and we know this because of what we're told in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10. It's where Christ is being tempted by the devil, and we're told in verse 8, the devil took him, Jesus, up onto an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, let me tell you, Satan could not have offered the kingdoms of the world if they were not already his to give. Additionally, we know from Ephesians 2.2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And we've learnt that the Greek word there in the text for air is also air, but it's spelled A-E-R, meaning the atmospheric region over the earth. So Satan's influence is found on the surface of the earth, and he is the one who is at work in those who are disobedient to God. In Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19, God speaks to the king of Tyre, but it quickly becomes apparent that he's not only speaking to the man, but he's also speaking to Satan who is working through the earthly king. And in that section of scripture, God reveals that Satan at one point was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Verse 14 goes on to reveal that Satan was once an anointed cherub. In other words, a type of powerful angel who was found in the very company of God. 
Ezekiel 28.15 goes on to state that Satan was perfect in all of his ways from the day that he was created until sin was found in him. Now, notice scripture says that Satan was created. He is not God's equal. He'd love you to think that, but God is the creator and Satan is created. He once was perfect, but became filled with iniquity, violence, and sin. And as a result, he was cast out of the presence of God to the earth because of his pride. Now, there were other angels who joined him in his rebellion, and they fell with him. These fallen angels, his demons, seemed to be arranged in a pecking order over different regions of the earth. That's who the prince of Persia is. He is a demonic overlord who is associated with the region of Persia. Therefore, because we have an active, cunning enemy who is well organized when it comes to working out his strategies, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Because we understand that we're up against this, we are to take up, in other words, we're to pick up and use every piece of armor that God has given to us. Because certainly an evil day will come to us all. But having accomplished everything God intended for us by his strength, we'll not only be able to face it, we'll be able to continue to stand firm in him. Look at what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 6.14. We're going to read the passage right through to the end and then we're going to break it down. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watched to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So in talking to them about the armor of God, Paul uses the picture of the Roman soldier to convey the truth that we, as soldiers for Christ, all need to understand. He uses this analogy of the Roman soldier for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, the people he was writing to had a very good working knowledge of the Roman soldier as well as his armor. And secondly, remember, Paul was chained to a soldier every hour of every day as he wrote this letter. And so obviously he has plenty of time to observe and to draw spiritual applications from what he sees. And as we come to understand something of the Roman armor, we too will deepen our understanding of the truth that God was communicating through Paul. Let's look at each piece. We're to stand immovable, having girded our waist with truth. In other words, taking hold of the truth of God, we've put it around our waists. The Roman soldier's belt held all of the other items of armor in place. And so why do you suppose all of the rest of God's armor depends on truth? 
Why would truth be foundational? Well, remember, we've spoken about what Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44. He said there that lies were his native language because the devil is a liar and the father of it. But in Psalm 31, verse 5, it reveals our Redeemer by contrast to be the Lord God of truth. And in John 14, verse 6, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only that, but John 17, 17 tells us that his word is truth. God is truth, and all of the armor he has given to us is held together by the truth of his word. Paul speaks of the fact that we have to gird ourselves or clothe ourselves with it. So we've got to be very intentional not only about knowing the truth, but walking clothed in the truth. God's truth affects the way that we act. And as we bind our waist with the truth of Christ, we'll have the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, this is not the breastplate of self-righteousness. No, this is Christ's righteousness given freely to all of those who are in him. For, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think of how these two things work together to defend us against the attacks of the devil. Satan speaks his lies, but we know the truth of who we are in Christ. We know the truth of our salvation. We know the truth of God's word. And we can live in uprightness, acting with decency, honesty, justice, morality. And when we live that way, it's harder for Satan to find a foothold. The breastplate was the piece of defensive armor that protected the heart. In verse 15, Paul goes on to declare that we are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, is what brings peace to a person's heart. Jesus is the one who brings us peace with God the Father, and he's also the one who breaks down the dividing walls of separation and hatred between different groups of people. Understanding the calm, strong love of God in Christ and the desperate need of humanity without him, well, that prepares us to do battle for the kingdom. The good news equips us to walk out into the world in order to bring others to Christ. But we're going to discuss this more next week, and you won't want to miss that lesson as we cover the rest of the armor. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much that we do not stand in our own strength, but rather we stand in your strength alone. Lord, thank you that you have equipped us and given everything we need to be successful. Lord, help us to take up what you've given us. Help us to practice the use of it so that we might be effective in your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.